Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. You're listening to Carl Fujerus, class of 98, artist and sculptor, giving a talk entitled The Universality of the Figure, Its Importance and Its Decline. Mr. Fujerus's talk was part of the Fine Arts series at Franciscan University of Steubenville. Uh, I just want to thank uh, Linus uh, for inviting me to come up and speak, and uh, this is great for me to be back. I'm a graduate of Franciscan University, class of 98. Um, I studied philosophy while I was here. So we will be uh, talking a little bit about uh, philosophy tonight, a little bit about psychology, a little bit about art history, all areas which, as Linus said, are not necessarily my area of expertise. I make things with my hands. So hopefully, uh, uh, as I delve into these other areas, I won't uh, step too far afield. Uh, and uh, I also wanted to thank briefly the uh, Language and Catechetical Institute who organized this show. And uh, it, it will be uh, here in Steubenville through the weekend, and then it travels uh, other places as well. So it's a, a really great event, and I'm, I'm uh, honored to be a part of it. Um, I, I, I wanted to start uh, today. This is uh, the title, sort of rather long-winded title of my talk, The uh, Universality of the Figure, Its Central Importance in Catholic Art, and Its Decline in the 20th Century. So this talk has a, 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 a three-part um, analysis of uh, figurative art. And uh, um, I thought that uh, today being the, the feast day of uh, St. Pope John Paul II, that starting with a quote of his would be appropriate. So the person is an entity of a sort to which the only proper and adequate way to relate is love. Um, and, and I hope that this uh, quote can be sort of a, a guide as we uh, meander through art history and um, sort of a light to illuminate as we uh, uh, travel the, the ancient halls of man and uh, look at art from all ages. So I wanted to start at that very ancient time, uh, remote uh, history in which uh, man began to make art. This is thought to be the very first work of art, uh, thought to be art because it doesn't seem to have any other particular function. It's not like any other tool that was found uh, and uh, as being something that, that is not uh, for the purpose of something else, and it has these markings that seem to be decorative, it is uh, a thought to be a work of art. We can't be certain exactly what it is, of course, um, but we know that it's, it's man-made and that it's an object of interest because it's ancient. And I wanted to, to compare that to this right here, uh, which is um, a, a much more contemporary work of, of art, one which uh, bears even perhaps a little bit less uh, interest than the previous one we looked at. Uh, it's from 2009, it's called Summit. These are boulders that were found as they are, put on pallets in a gallery, and the artist actually did touch them. He put a little summit cross on the top of, of each one of these. Um, so the question arises, you know, how, how did we get from this in our earliest beginnings, tens of thousands of years ago, to this? Also another chunk of stone, Michelangelo's David. Beautifully rendered figure. And how did we get in the last 500 years from here uh, back to here? And uh, in other media, in painting, to here, uh, Jackson Pollock, of course, and uh, to here, uh, this sculpture, which is just uh, chunks of, of car parts melded together. And uh, this is drawing. Um, with, with blue tape on the gallery wall directly. So um, these are our three questions. We can start with the premise uh, that the 20th century has largely rejected uh, the figure. This is not 100% true. We'll see examples of figurative art from the early 20th century, um, but also a lot of uh, figurative works of art from the 20th century that, that I believe do reject the figure. Uh, why had the figure for all these tens of thousands of years been so prevalent in art is one question. Why had the figure been so prevalent in Catholic culture in particular? Uh, uh, and we'll talk about one not so often mentioned reason for its decline in the 20th century. There are many reasons, many of which you'll read in art history books about how this and that and the other movement uh, influenced the trajectory of art history. But I think this will be something of um, a different introduction to the, to the dialogue about art. And um, why should we care about figurative art? Why should we make it is another question I'm going to try to an answer. 
Uh, many people would look at those works that we just saw, the tape on the wall, and say, you know, I like that, or I like uh, the crumpled up metal. There's uh, um, something about that it speaks to me that, that I find beautiful, maybe even. And uh, uh, why should I care about making figurative art? And so I'll try to make the case for, for figurative art. So I wanted to start with this uh, um, idea that we can look around uh, many different cultures throughout uh, the world. Here is one of the most ancient representations of the human body. So we saw the, uh, the Blombos cave carving, the carved ochre a moment ago. This is uh, deemed to be about 25,000 years old. It's the Venus of Willendorf, found in Austria. And um, ancient uh, work of art, um, this uh, a figurine carved out of wood from uh, South America. Here, if we just look around the, the globe at different cultures, they've all engaged in figurative art, whether monumental like this, uh, in, involving uh, craftsmanship that was very fine and refined uh, out of stone, or whether they're out of wood, um, more uh, decorative like this one, or out of bronze, this one from India, African figurines, giant monumental sculptures in the United States, whether it's folk art, like this uh, Wurzelmann from uh, the, the German-speaking world, or uh, depictions of, of the gods, the Olmec uh, civilization here in Central America, giving us this example, and on and on, the, the huge, uh, beautiful sculptures of uh, um, the Egyptian civilization, uh, which was extremely prominent and influential, or even places in the farthest reaches of the earth, these figures from uh, the Easter Island, um, where you'd think uh, they didn't come into contact with much of anything. Uh, and so we can see that art is universal to all cultures. And uh, if we look around, we'll see that art, figurative art is universal to all cultures as well, with few, few exceptions. So uh, Judaism isn't famous for its figurative work, uh, nor is Islam. But even within those cultures that essentially prohibit uh, figurative art, there are pockets in which you see in illuminated manuscripts uh, the representation of the figure and so on. So it's not because uh, there wasn't an inclination there so much as uh, it was because there was uh, a, a, a strict sort of um, a rule against it. So why is figurative art uh, um, universal to all cultures? And I wanted to, to start with uh, that question and a few images to kind of try to build that um, uh, analysis. So what do you guys see uh, when you look at this image? Okay. What? You see a schizophrenic. Okay. A butterfly. Okay. Anybody else? A moth, a bat. Okay. So we all see something, whether it's a schizophrenic or an inkblot or, or a moth or, or something like this. Whether this is an accurate way of uh, psychoanalyzing anybody, I don't know. But what I can say is that we all see some, make some sort of an association with this. Uh, or this, for example. What do you guys see when you, when you look at this image? Uh, patty, cake. patty cake, OK. Two bears. Two bears. A, cat's face. A cat's face, OK. Very good. So we, see, we associate freely with these random, uh, uh, these random occurrences. The, the ink is just uh, blobbed into the paper. It's folded in half. And uh, uh, this association that we make is called pareidolia, uh, the idea that there's a random occurrence there. And we attribute to it a certain meaning. We try to see a certain meaning in it. And it's a, sort of a spontaneous response to, to seeing patterns, uh, an imaginative spontaneous response. What do you guys see when you look at this? It's not an ink blot. Sideways face. Okay, so our, our ability to look to recognize faces is also very very strongly in, ingrained in us. This doesn't actually really look anything like a face, especially not when it's sideways. Uh, the face is much longer. The eyes are much lower. They have a totally different shape. We have noses and mouths that that have lips on them actually, and so on. Ears, hairline, and whatnot. But. Uh, the most important parts of it, right, the eyes that see everything that allowed us to navigate through the world and the mouth uh, through which we eat and breathe and speak and kiss our children on the forehead and so on, that very important part uh, of our face is there. And so if the eyes and, nose, uh, eyes and mouth are there, it's a face. Um, so we, we see faces everywhere as well. So this is a, a smiley face crater on the moon. Uh, here it is upright. 
There's this mountain on Mars that looks like this. And people uh, of all ancient civilizations would have, maybe not necessarily with a telescope, seen this thing, but the idea of the man in the moon uh, or seeing figures in the clouds. This is a, a hockey player uh, with his head by the sun there with his uh, winding up to, to cast the puck. Um, here, a beautiful example of a profile in that mountain coming down with the hairline and the eye socket. It's a very striking image. Uh, these figures throughout uh, the landscape. So we, we freely associate with, uh, uh, in general, imagery. But then in particular, we, we also uh, see the face, which, which stands to reason, right? If you think about it, uh, ancient man wandering through the visual cacophony of the forest uh, needs to be able to recognize a face uh, in a split second. His survival may well depend on it as he is um, wanting to figure out whether this is a, a predator or a prey, or whether it's uh, a kin, or a friend, or foe, and uh, wants to know that within a very, 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 very short amount of time, so he can either tuck tail and run, uh, or fight, or hunt, or hide, or do something to, to save his life. So ingrained within our psychology is this uh, survival instinct to recognize faces, uh, which coupled with uh, pareidolia is, is at the source of, I think, art making. And Leonardo da Vinci talked about this. When you look at a, a wall spotted with stains, you may see battles of figures and actions, or strange faces and costumes, an endless variety of objects, which you could re reduce to complete and well-drawn figures. And uh, here we have an example of uh, an artist who found a stick and uh, saw within it a face, and with a few uh, carvings, turned that stick with its hat into a face and some paint, stuck a cigar in his mouth. So artists have used these things uh, to make art. So we can say that all art is uni uh, universal. Art is universal to all cultures. Figurative art is also universal to all cultures. And generating an image of the person is an intuitive, unselfconscious, spontaneous response to the world in, in some respects. Uh, uh, here are some more examples of artists using these tricks for our amusement. Archimboldo painting this beautiful uh, still life, which if turned upside down, reveals this face. And Salvatore Dali here giving us uh, this hut in the landscape, looks like a deserted landscape with a few trees behind it, and uh, a whole bunch of figures sitting around in front of it. But if you turn your head sideways, you'll see that uh, the image actually here is an eye and an eye and a nose coming down, and the lips in red and the chin down here wrapping around, and of course the hair and, uh, and the neck over here. So, um, so these are tricks that artists play on, on us to, uh, to, to amuse us with their work, to give us a double image within the work, and uh, it, it keeps our interest. This facial recognition is something that's so strong that we see it elsewhere as well, and we have such an inclination to recognize the, the uh, emotion within the face that we can attribute it to uh, other things. Here's Mr. Cinderblock. And we have this guy is a little, always seems to me to be a little, uh, um, maybe not so bright. He, he's sort of dumbfounded a little bit. This guy is very surprised of the jolly janitorial cart. Have you ever been yelled at by a toilet? It's, uh, it's a rather frightening experience. We have the, the angry boat and uh, uh, another familiar face. Uh, I, I found this on the Language and Catechetical Institute's uh, website and thought it was such a beautiful image of the cartels. I posted it online and somebody, without any discussion about uh, the things we're talking about, said, uh, he looks so forlorn, poor thing. <laughs> so, uh, so it's just our, our intuitive response to, to these things, to see uh, the face. So we have this psychological survival instinct in part that, that relies on being able to recognize faces. Our brains are hardwired with a propensity towards the image of man and, and I wanted to introduce uh, C.S. Lewis here uh, for a moment uh, in his book, The Abolition of Man, that we'll get into a little bit over the course of this discussion on the, object, on the objectivity of what he terms the Tao. So living within this world of value responses, he cites at the end of his book sort of instances of, um, uh, of the, the Tao. 
uh, and cites all these examples of illustrations from around the world from all kinds of different cultures, laws. And he draws the conclusion not so much that these all cropped up in different places at different times and therefore they are true, but rather he says uh, all of civilization can really be uh, traced back to one civilization. And this is, of course, a, a very lively part of our own faith's narrative, Adam and Eve. It's also been justified by science that, that all, um, all of us come from one, uh, one source. And, uh, and thus, he says, the Tao is something that's actually passed on, transmitted. He uses the analogy uh, as an infectious disease or as an apostolic uh, uh, procession um, uh, throughout the ages, handed down. So I would maintain that this uh, depiction of the figure is something like that, that's been handed down through the ages, throughout all civilization, so it's present everywhere. And its universality means something about its objectivity, too. We are uh, people who make art and who make art about people. Um, so I wanted to start at the very early, earliest uh, beginnings of this art about, about people. Uh, this is the very oldest uh, representation of the human body is thought to be uh, uh, about 35 or 40,000 years old. Uh, the Holyfels Venus. Here's the Venus of Willendorf, which we, we saw a moment ago. Many of these were found throughout uh, Europe and other places. And uh, if we think of uh, these images, they, they strike us as being uh, um, very similar to one another in many respects. And uh, s s s some certain uh, uh, body types are repeated over and over again. And uh, there's a, a, a neuroscientist named Dr. Ramachandran who has a theory about why these uh, figurines all look this way. Long story short, essentially they exaggerate the features uh, which are deemed to be necessary and, uh, and vital. And uh, so the idea, uh, if you're ancient man in the Ice Age wandering around, you don't have a dwelling, you don't have uh, food readily available to have an onboard store of fat would be something desirable. It keeps you warm against the elements. It keeps you fed like a bear who who uh, gets well fed and then hibernates throughout the whole winter. It also helps you nourish your, your offspring and, and keep them warm. Uh, breast milk is filled with fat. So it's a, really a survival uh, uh, mode that is being addressed here. And the, this biological um, aspect that we have to live and, and survive and to reproduce is also at the source of, of figurative art. So we have this survival of the species at, at very much at our heart. Uh, we have an instinctual attraction to the figure. Obviously, we spend, uh, I don't need to prove this, we spend much of our time uh, seeking a mate throughout our uh, youth and, and adulthood, uh, building a family, having children, and so on and so forth. So that also, this biological um, aspect is at the, at the center of uh, the centrality of the figure. But there's more. Uh, another ancient figure here, uh, the, uh, the lion man. Uh, also deemed to be about 40,000 years old or so. The artist here is telling us something about humanity. We don't really know exactly w how this fit into their culture or what he's saying, but he's drawing a parallel between the lion and uh, the person, this upright uh, figure here. Uh, whether it's um, anthropomorphized lion as deity or whether he's saying there's something in man that's like animal or something about animal that's man, uh, there's something that he's trying to say about uh, about humanity at large. So man is animal, or animal is man. Man is also uh, a rational animal, says Rodin, thinking uh, of uh, Greek philosophy. The Greeks themselves say, well, man is like, like the gods. This is uh, a work by Polycletus and Phidias, and they all strove to have these perfect harmonic proportions within uh, within the body, Pythagorean geometry, which they saw to be the divinity of numbers, sort of this way in which human beings are a reflection of, of the divine. Da Vinci tells us man is at the, the center of the universe, this, um, uh, this humanist idea, man the measure of all things, as Protagoras said. Uh, Michelangelo tells us that man is in the image and likeness of God, that he has a part about him that is uh, celestial, here the head uh, in front of the sky, a part about him which is uh, terrestrial, which is physical, which is body. And uh, in these works, he shows us the struggle, this tension between uh, the body and the soul. 
Uh, and these are uh, entitled the, the captives or, or slaves. They're reminiscent of Plato's figures in the allegory of the cave that are encased in the stone of the cave. They're writhing to, to, to free themselves in this art, uh, battle against um, matter, which is an impoverished sort of version of these uh, ideal forms that exist outside the cave and uh, against the senses ultimately which deceive us. So this, this battle is very real for uh, Michelangelo who was a, a Neoplatonist and uh, these uh, figures tell us something about man's lot. So there's also something in all these cultures figurative works that is of, of a philosophical nature. Um, know thyself, an intellectual pursuit to know the nature of man. And, um, and so uh, more and more parts of, of our being are sort of address, are being addressed here by, uh, by, figurative, uh, by figurative art. They're, they're in fact stemming forth from uh, these aspects of ourselves uh, in flowing forth into our artwork. So one of the things that, that classical ph philosophy uh, did a lot was uh, to look at some of the main differences between this specimen and this specimen right here. And uh, w one can see the, the posture, the general posture of this specimen as versus this one as being indicative of something of, uh, of man's nature. So we see here everything on a horizontal, right? We have the head, uh, which is the seat of the intellect, um, the chest, which is the seat of the heart, the gut, and everything all on a horizontal level. But in this uh, being, on the other hand, we see that there's a hierarchical structure in which the head, the seat of the intellect, is higher. The heart, the chest, is also higher than, uh, than some of these biological needs that we have. Right? We need to eat uh, to survive. We need to reproduce for the species to survive. These things are good things in and of themselves, but they need to be governed by uh, the heart, the moral center of man, and his, uh, his intellect. So um, looking uh, again at, at C.S. Lewis, talking in his book, The Abolition of Man, about uh, this world of proper value responses that, that he terms the Tao that he's uh, borrowing from Chinese philosophy to, to name. But he, he uses it as, as examples in it uh, the Ordo Amoris by, uh, uh, of, of Augustine. He uses Plato's thinking. He talks about uh, Hindu thought and so on. And this idea is that it is set in stark contrast to the world of what he terms the world of the green book. So he starts out his book by um, uh, talking about a, uh, a, a textbook for school children in which value responses are essentially being deemed uh, to be saying something merely about the person expressing them, just saying something about their own feelings rather than saying something about the thing in and of itself. Um, and he talks about this idea of a value response as being um, really stemming from this, uh, the chest, stemming from the, the, uh, this central part of man. And he said, the head rules the belly through the chest, this indispensable liaison officer between cerebral man and visceral man. And the, the, the title of that chapter is, is uh, Men Without Chest. So he's saying if we are to educate our children uh, in this manner in which values are seen totally as relativistic and uh, expressing merely something uh, of uh, one's own uh, emotion rather than saying something truly present in the object itself that demands a certain response of us, uh, then we are breeding men without chess, people uh, that are a little bit more like this than they are, perhaps like this. So uh, this response that we talked about, this intuitive, unselfconscious, spontaneous response that happens in art is a response to the world of values. Um, and I wanted to hear to return to this uh, quote by John Paul II, the person is an entity of a sort to which the only proper and adequate way to relate is love. He's talking precisely about this value response to personhood and that love, loving the person is that, that proper response. So when we look at this uh, uh, list that's building uh, on the centrality of the figure and where it comes from, we can see that there's a psychological component to it. The subconscious or the psyche is, is addressed there, a biological um, source for it. Uh, the body is, is uh, addressed there, a, a philosophical aspect to it that, that speaks to the intellect, and a value response uh, that speaks to the heart. And, and of this, um, 
heart that C.S. Lewis puts sort of as, as uh, of central importance, Dietrich von Hildebrand also says that in many ways the heart is more, more the real self of the person than his intellect or his, his will, this ability to, to give these due value responses uh, to uh, the thing before us that by its very nature sort of uh, demands of us a certain response. So looking again at uh, this vertical posture, this uh, uprightness, we can say that there's a certain commonality between this uh, thing here, which is the person, and this thing here, which is the column. Many um, of our terms about um, morality and uh, the sort of the character of a person come from uprightness. You can say somebody upholds the law or uh, somebody is um, morally upright. Um, these are terms that are uh, often used or somebody's a pillar of society, meaning that they, they abide by the law and so on and so forth. Even in, in common speech we say somebody's a stand-up guy, right? What, what, is it, what does that mean? That means they're, they're upright uh, as they should be as opposed to uh, being horizontal laid out like a beast. And the, 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 um, the pillar has always been seen as a person. The capital is the name for this top part comes from the Latin word caput, which is the head. Here we have a head engraved upon this uh, beautiful capital. And these are probably the most famous examples of fully anthropomorphized uh, figures in the porch of maidens at the Acropolis. So uh, architecture has a component to it that is figurative as well. And many other terms that we uh, uh, use in architecture are drawn from the body. So the facade is the face, and in this case we have the eyes here, which are coincidentally have eyelashes on them to keep the pigeons away, uh, a nose and a mouth in the middle. We know the common uh, saying uh, that the eyes are the window to the soul, right? And when you're inside the building, you see out through the windows. So there's a commonality there between eyes and, and windows. But the buildings also have uh, proper eyes, name, termed eyes, the oculus here in this uh, beautiful painting that shows the inside of the, uh, the Pantheon in Rome, having an oculus, the eye of God, which, resists, which exists here at the top of this dome, which represents the, the vault of the heavens. Um, so eyes have, uh, or buildings have eyes. Uh, this is a, a great drawing by uh, Francesco di Giorgio, uh, an, a Renaissance architect from Italy, uh, draws all of his proportions for the, for the molding here from the various parts of the forehead and nose and so on. By no coincidence is this uh, bit right here uh, lined up with the mouth because it's called dental molding. And this dental molding, the teeth of the building is seen uh, all over the place as well. Michelangelo tells us that it is therefore indisputable that the limbs of architecture are derived from the limbs of man, and he who does not master the nude cannot understand the principles of architecture. So architecture has always been seen in the classical tradition as being anthropomorphic, of being essentially figurative art also. And we see figures adorning all parts. Here's uh, Dante uh, raising the roof. Uh, a doorknob with, with figures on it, these atlas figures that, that adorn buildings throughout, and so on. But there's another aspect in which architecture was seen as uh, anthropomorphic or an image of man, namely uh, in that it was a body within which a soul resided. So here the temple of Athena that had inside of it uh, a, an incredible statue of Athena herself, the, the goddess dwelt within the temple. And um, it was, the temple is actually constructed in such a way that it's oriented such that when the sun rises on her birthday, uh, the feast of Athena, the sun comes pouring through the, the center doors and illuminates this incredible gilded sculpture. This is a, a reproduction of, of the sculpture of, of Athena that, that was lost. Um, and in Christianity, obviously, this idea that the temple is uh, that the body is the temple of the spirit is something that's, that's commonplace. Uh, here from uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19, do you not know that the, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? And then, of course, when Jesus answered uh, and said to them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again. And a couple lines later on, uh, uh, there's sort of the wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, uh, and they didn't know he was talking about his body. So they, they fill us in on that. 
um, in case we missed it. So this idea that, that the temple is uh, akin to the body and that, that our bodies truly are temples is something that, that is revealed to us by, by God himself. And when Christians set out to uh, make temples, they use this idea of the body as uh, um, an image to draw inspiration from. So the footprint uh, or the floor plan rather of many churches in this cruciform way uh, drawn out uh, with the proportions of the body. Here we can see a great uh, example, uh, another one by the same architect, uh, Di Giorgio, uh, showing that, that the, um, the vertical also, the limbs of man, uh, so to speak, um, informing the limbs of architecture. And in this uh, cruciform model that we see here, uh, the body is made up of you know, the, what we call the body of the church. The main body of the church is made up by uh, the parishioners who sit there, and Christ is the head of the mystical body of the church, resides where the head would be. That's where the tabernacle is. That's where uh, the, um, uh, the sacrifice of the mass takes place, place on, on the altar. And this idea of the uh, church as temple being made up of bodies is present throughout many different architectural detailings. Uh, in uh, Gothic cathedrals, for example, these here are uh, pillars of the church. They're the saints, the living stones, so to speak, that make up uh, the uh, mystical body of Christ, uh, which we all participate in uh, when we take the Eucharist, uh, of course, and uh, we constitute all together this, this temple um, in which the, the spirit dwells. Here's uh, Raphael's beautiful painting of the, of the uh, disputa showing uh, the centrality of the Eucharist in, in, uh, this, uh, in this cosmic debate over, over the nature of the Eucharist. So we can say that there's, in addition to all the, the aspects mentioned before, also theological uh, aspect that in particular in Catholic art and architecture is uh, the source of our inspiration to make uh, art about human persons. So the body is the temple of the spirit, the, the mystical body, this bodily language of the incarnation in Catholic theology is a great source of inspiration for artists and at the source of our particular interest in, in, um, in figurative art in the Catholic uh, tradition. But there's more. Uh, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God and in the beginning through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that had, has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the light shine, that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So this idea that uh, all things that were made were somehow made through the second person of the Trinity, the person that is uh, uh, also the hypostatic union, he is the incarnate God through uh, the body, um, he restores all things. So this image has always struck me as particularly uh, interesting and beautiful in, in, in thinking about this idea that all things are made through Christ and somehow they, they bear something of his, uh, of his imprint, so to speak, uh, the logos uh, through which all things uh, are made. If you look really carefully at this drawing, it's made up of one single line that starts in the center here and swirls out and the entire image is made up by this line getting thinner or thicker uh, uh, to create the lights and, and darks. And this idea of a thread sort of running through all of creation, uh, that everything was made through, uh, through Christ, uh, uh, the Logos, um, comes to mind when I see this. And in churches, you see this all the time since the earliest beginnings. There's a church, uh, uh, you know, a recess in the catacombs in Rome showing uh, at the very top here the, the Alpha and the Omega with Christ central in this field of stars. So he's um, uh, in the, the cosmic sphere, uh, the first and last through whom all things were made. And you see in these beautiful churches throughout Christendom, the centrality of Christ here and uh, this, these images of the heavenly worship, right, from the book of, of Revelation, this idea that Christ is enthroned. Around him you have the four uh, living creatures seen here, 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 and here and surrounded by the elders uh, dressed in white, the 24 elders, and on and on. There's these great and beautiful prophetic um, descriptions of St. John's vision inscribed right there on the temple, on the temple walls. So uh, this, this wall is made up of all these figures. The temple is uh, also something which is uh, cosmological. 
uh, that we'll get into in a minute here. Uh, additional images like this one from uh, Fra Angelico show that uh, the centrality of Christ, the incarnate uh, God in the center of, of, of the universe, in the center of the cosmos, the created reality. Uh, here a church in your neck of the woods, uh, Wheeling, West Virginia, has this incredible uh, Christocentric image. Uh, and a couple more that, that we'll get back to later. Uh, this is in the Josephinum in, um, in Columbus. And you can see here, again, this idea of uh, the heavenly Jerusalem being made up of the living stones. And in these, this is the wall right here that you can see across the top. In these niches dwell uh, all the people that uh, are these um, uh, jewels, these living stones that make up uh, the eternal heavenly Jerusalem as well. Here it is in, in situ on, the, on location. And the idea of entering in through this triumphal arch, right, the, the center uh, three doors here, into uh, a, a building that represents a cosmic order that not only has figurative elements throughout like you see here, but also sort of vegetative elements throughout. The whole building is encrusted oftentimes with uh, um, vines and branches and motifs uh, such as this, flowers and so on, rose windows that are themselves uh, uh, flowers, um, pillars like trees that have capitals that are, uh, that are filled with flowers and so on, flowers throughout the top here and all in front of uh, the, the, the stars of the heavens, this idea that not only man is redeemed through Christ, but all of creation uh, is, is made anew. So this cosmologic, Christocentric uh, view of the universe allows us to put the figure, the person, uh, in, in its center uh, and has as its being, so the, the cosmos has it's being through the person of Christ, who is by no coincidence the incarnate person of the Trinity. And uh, through his body, everything will be renewed and given a new life in the new heaven and the new earth at the end of, uh, of, of time when, when all is fulfilled. So all these different reasons are reasons for the centrality of art in uh, world cultures at large, and particularly these last two pertaining to, to Catholic culture. So we're approaching uh, uh, answering some of these questions about why uh, art is, uh, figurative art is central throughout uh, all cultures and in particular in Catholic culture. And I wanted to go back to this idea, uh, another idea that is uh, there in C.S. Lewis, this notion that, that it is handed down, that this proper response to values is handed down from one generation to the next, and uh, the proper uh, subject of education is indeed to form young people to have these proper responses. And that something of our very nature is uh, uh, constituted by this, these proper responses that we have uh, to the world of values. So art too is a way of passing down uh, humanity, as C.S. Lewis would say, uh, from one generation to the next. What it means to be human, it means all these things. It means to be rational and to be animal and to be in the image and likeness of God and to be uh, in a certain relationship with God and to have this Christocentric worldview and so on and so forth. All those things are uh, true about humanity and, and if art can convey those, then art is one way in which um, a person or humanity, uh, what it means to be human can be passed on from one generation to the next. So this idea of, of tradition, as, as Mahler I think said, um, is not the worship of ashes, but rather the preservation of fire, that the torch is being passed on uh, from one generation to the next, and, and humanity persists. But uh, the last chapter in The Abolition of Man, to no one's surprise, is entitled The Abolition of Man. And in that, he talks uh, a, a lot about what happens when man, man's conquest of nature, in essence, turns not only against uh, uh, achieving dominion and, and power over nature, but also ultimately power over uh, our own nature. Um, so this notion that uh, man uh, in his technological advances seeks to uh, gain power over nature is something that we can readily uh, see. Uh, he says that this power is something that is held by few. And so in reality, uh, man's conquest over nature is really uh, the conquest of a few uh, uh, over nature, and those few have sort of control over um, the accessibility to this control. And so they, use, they can use that as a way of, 
of uh, dominating others. But when mankind turns this, uh, this um, conquest of nature, this attempting to control and dictate what nature is onto himself, he changes something of what he himself is, which is what this part, uh, this last part of the talk is going to be about. So the, uh, up until, up in, right through the 1800s, even the late 1800s, uh, works of art like this were still very commonplace, showing the dignity of man, his place in nature, uh, the dignity of, of labor, and so on and so forth. Many religious paintings still were happening, and the figure was still very much uh, at the center, right, all, uh, right up through the Impressionist movement. If you think about uh, artists like Degas and so on at the end of, of the uh, 19th century. Uh, we're still all filled with figures, but soon enough, uh, things like this Jackson Pollock that we saw earlier, or the drawing, uh, started to crop up. And it wasn't maybe as, as uh, gradual as you might think. And uh, this a very recent work of art by a woman named Appleby, Jasper Johns, these are all the big names of art history throughout the 20th century. This is um, not a, a miss slide. This is actually a painting. Here you can see it a little bit better here. Ad Reinhardt, um, and and here he is uh, sitting in front of all of his masterpieces in his studio, pondering uh, the uh, the void there. So in painting, we see a conspicuous lack of figuration towards. Uh, to the extreme of, of being really absurd in, in, in some of these instances. We saw the mangled metal in sculpture, but what does figurative sculpture do in the 20th century? It also distorts and disrupts and pulls apart and, 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 and destroys the figure. So we go from this, this is a 20th century figurative sculpture. It's a very, very good one at that, uh, 1910. And uh, uh, in, in a few short years, we go from this work of art to something like this. So this is a sculpture. It's uh, by uh, Duchamp, uh, who famously bought uh, just a, a urinal at the, the plumbing store, put it on its back, signed it with a fictitious name, R. Mutt, dated it 1917, so we're just a few years after uh, Rodin's thinker, and uh, called it sculpture. And this wasn't readily uh, um, embraced, but soon enough it was embraced, and, and to this day it is one of the, deemed one of the most influential works of art of the 20th century, uh, because it did, in fact, change everything. Um, here it is in the gallery where you can behold it. It struck such a chord with the imagination of people that they started doing things like this with it, uh, the, the urinal dress. And when we can chuckle about something like this, but if we really think about it, she's dressed up as something that you would uh, that you would urinate inside of. So that's not a, a very nice thing to say about a person or a very nice thing to do to a person. Uh, and maybe it's not fair to compare the urinal uh, as a, a sculpture to Michelangelo's uh, Pietà, but the humanity here uh, that, that exudes from every part of this sculpture is just breathtaking and it, and it knocks you on your feet, uh, off your feet when you see it. And that's certainly not true of, of the urinal. So Duchamp said, uh, destruction is also creation. So he is in the business of tearing down. He's in the business of destroying things. And C.S. Lewis talks about this. Those who will replace traditional values are not men, in a sense, in the old sense at all. They are, if you'd like, men who have sacrificed their own share of traditional humanity in order to devote themselves to the task of deciding what humanity shall henceforth mean. And he says later on that he's inclined to think that these conditioners, is who he calls these people, will actually hate the conditioned. So uh, if it's not fair to compare Duchamp with, um, with Michelangelo, we'll compare another, another artist to himself and see his progression. You may not know this painting, but I, I feel this is a, a very intense and beautiful painting. Shows an incredible interior life uh, of, this, of the subject. This is a fisherman. Um, this artist changes his styles m many times. So this is late 1800s. Here's another one of his works. You might start to glean who this is. Still uh, showing, I think, some of that humanity that we're looking for in, um, in, in art. So it's not a matter of whether the art is realistic or not. This is not really a battle against abstraction that I'm on here. Uh, uh, we see many abstract works within the Catholic Church. Icons are abstract. They're, some uh, here on the walls. 
uh, that are ab abstract, that, that I think still can show something of the interior life of the person. So here you're starting to get a sense of who this is. We're talking about Picasso. Um, but soon enough, even when works like this still hold on to those vestiges of, of true uh, artistic expression of embracing the figure of, of uh, love for the figure, for, for the person, so to speak, he turns to then to this and this. So if we compare Picasso to himself, you can see a radical uh, departure from uh, the portrait that he painted of his mother when he was a young man, and this portrait of a re real person. This isn't just some abstract design. This is a woman, I believe her name was Lee Miller. And, um, and this, to me, shows nothing whatsoever of that respect uh, for the value that the human person objectively represents in and of themselves. So uh, other examples of this conspicuous lack of figuration, Mark Rothko, who, who is another big name painter. You can't see it so well in this slide. This is actually has two shades of red in it. Um, didn't show up so well here. Um, Kandinsky, another work of art that in no uh, a previous century would be deemed a work of art. But when 20th century artists, the big recognized names of 20th century art, uh, turn to, uh, to uh, figuration, this is what they do. So they barely recognizable, distorted, destroyed, uh, 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 mangled, uh, uh, figure by de Kooning. Here another example. Francisco Clemente. Even Jackson Pollock, before he was doing, uh, doing this type of work right here, of which he said that he wanted to end the viewer's search for figurative elements in paintings, uh, so he abandoned titles and abandoned any type of uh, figurative element. He started numbering his paintings so that uh, uh, he could invite people to look passively and try to receive what the painting has to offer and not bring a visual subject uh, matter at all uh, into, or any preconceived notion of what they should be looking for. So he's trying to really uh, leave a blank slate for people to, to uh, certainly not see any figures or anything meaningful in it. But before he was doing all that stuff, he was doing this with the figure, uh, this orange face. So uh, this idea of, of um, you know, the dignity of the person that, that requires of us this response of love is not present here. And this, this unrepeatability, this incommunicable self that, that Dr. Crosby talks about, uh, which is the source of this dignity that we're all unique unto ourselves, is something that is lost on 20th century artists who do this, uh, Andy Warhol. Uh, the, the, the figure, the person is just a, an endlessly repeatable uh, commodified sales item. So here you are, you can, you can buy and sell the figure and pe celebrities do this all the time. They brand themselves, they turn themselves in, in, in many ways into uh, an obje object uh, for uh, buying and selling for commerce and they make millions by doing this and they sacrifice I think something of their own humanity as C.S. Lewis talked about talks about for the sake of power. They get infinite money, infinite power, infinite uh, recognition and, and respect and love from, uh, from the general populace. And they are in turn able to control everybody because everyone starts to act like them and do what, whatever uh, they, they do. And, and we all buy into this and, and you know, OMG, Lady Gaga's wearing a meat dress or something like this. And the meat dress I think in, in many respects is indicative of this. So she turns herself into a piece of meat that can be bought and sold. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this idea of the abolition of man also having some component in which, uh, you know, someday through uh, prenatal conditioning and, and uh, uh, you know, um, uh, eugenics that we can create people in a certain way. This is something that's happening already. I think the, the, the first genetically modified babies just turned 18 recently, I think was a headline I saw. Uh, some, some guy recently wanted to reintroduce Neanderthal genes into the pool uh, and, uh, and p children with DNA from three parents instead of two are being 
uh, tested out and so on and so forth. So we have an utter disregard for what, even on a biological genetic level, human persons are. And uh, John Paul II uh, cautions us about this. Abortion, euthanasia, the human cloning, for example, risk reducing the human person to a mere object, life and death to order, as it were, one object among many, one which requires of us no particular attention or love or any special treatment uh, beyond the type of treatment we give to a chair or a dog or anything else. So these ideas spill over into everything. This beautiful anthropomorphized notion of architecture disappears in the 20th century. And you have uh, this, the Bauhaus, which uh, decides everything is utilitarian, of utilitarian value. Uh, these uh, buildings are from a movement called brutalists. Th that will tell you something about uh, what they're doing. And ironically, this one, there's a lot of these brutalist buildings in uh, DC. Uh, the Department of Health and Human Services here. You might go in healthy, but I think you might come out dead uh, or cr crushed, squashed somehow. Here, another brutalist sculpture. Doesn't seem like the place you'd want to ever be. And even if it's not these avant-garde uh, structures that, that uh, the elite commission and, and it speaks to, to a certain um, a class of, of artistic connoisseurs or some such thing, uh, look at Main Street. Uh, utility trumps all. And you have these uh, very um, uh, basic utilitarian boxes that populate our streets. I find this an interesting contrast, the old building under which this picture was taken and uh, the new one standing in radical opposition to one another. And uh, here's the places where we live. Uh, Le Corbusier, who was uh, one of the most well-known uh, Architects of the 20th century said a house is a machine for living. So we're moving away from this idea of, of uh, the house as a, um, as a person, as anthropomorphized, as something that, that we will feel well in, but rather as just simply a machine for living. And indeed, people are just machines. The factory worker on the line running things through is just another cog on the wheel, and uh, he's part of the machine, and uh, so everything becomes mechanized. Here's one of uh, Le Corbusier's most famous churches at Ronchamp. You've seen this, I'm sure, before, but the back side, the other side of it looks like this. Not very inviting or beautiful. Here's another one of his churches. From the inside, it looks like this, uh, rather like a, a nuclear reactor of some sort. And you can see these hazard signs up above. These are on these sort of uh, ledges. Uh, approach with caution. You know, you can almost hear the, the alarm sounding. And, uh, and this is really more akin than those, those other images that we saw of architecture that, that uh, denote this, this beautiful cosmological view. That they, they represent nature and the cosmos. They represent uh, people and so on. And they and they're, they're are very in, adorned in a very festive manner. You know, they are uh, exquisite. It's an architecture of, of joy in a sense. You know, Christ, the bridegroom of, of the church, awaits the arrival of the church. And finally, we are united uh, with, uh, with the bridegroom who, who awaits us and, and all things are fulfilled. Uh, if you think of any uh, wedding feast uh, around that you've been to anytime, it's very festive. It's adorned with streamers and flowers and so on and so forth. Um, and so if there's this nuptial characteristic to uh, the, the church as well, um, that is missing here. This is rather more like the dome of the workaday world, this concrete oppressive dome that, that uh, it is almost impossible to, to uh, pierce through. This actually is a church as well, um, uh, St. Bernadette in, in France. Um, so this, uh, this festive uh, um, uh, and, and uh, beautifully ornate uh, architecture that, that um, we are meant to rejoice in is no longer present. And if you think about this idea of celebration, really, it's not just uh, uh, one that is you know, my take on this or my subjective understanding of these spaces. If you think about pictures from festivals and parties that you've seen around the world, the, the carnival in South America with all the colors and the costumes, or uh, Hindu festivals with big, beautiful colored banners, streamers, 
in, in, in China, you'll see uh, uh, festoons and banners and dragons, and, and you can just imagine all this uh, color and festivity, right? That's what we have within our churches as well. Uh, and that's a universal way in which people celebrate or show uh, a festive special occasion that's set apart from other things. But uh, nobody parties like this. I mean, this is a, uh, a Rothko Chapel, the guy that did the, the red painting. And here you can sit on these spaces and contemplate uh, the black void. And he's not trying to transmit or communicate anything to you whatsoever. Here they are uh, staring into the void. They're not learning who they are. They're not uh, uh, encountering uh, God in the same way. They're not being prescribed anything because people are suspicious about this idea of handing down something in tradition. That I, how dare I tell anyone else who they are, right? And so we give them the tabula rasa, figure it out for yourself. You're a blank slate. Make yourself into whatever you want. Um, it, it, and, and so uh, the ramifications of this aren't, again, just in these sort of um, um, highfalutin sort of elite uh, art and architecture circles, but they come down to us in, in uh, our everyday churches. So the reason why these pictures aren't very sharp of these images here from the Josephinum is that this mural no longer exists. It was painted over uh, with gray paint uh, of the type that you would uh, paint your garage floor with. And uh, uh, this church right here, which is the oldest church in the uh, parish of, uh, in, in the Diocese of um, Kansas City, St. Mary's, they pour, pulled everything off of this, this uh, altar wall here. They broke open the bottom 10 feet or so and shoved back into this little cave uh, the altar and the priest celebrates uh, mass back in there. There's a huge speaker up here and uh, you can't really see what's going on. I showed this to a friend of mine who's an architect. Uh, she's not Catholic and she said, it looks like a guillotine. And I said, you know, you don't know how right you are because that is uh, the head of the mystical body of Christ that, that resides there at the apse of the church has been mutilated and, and decapitated and he is no longer there. So, uh, so these things uh, trickle down into our midst. Uh, here, a brand new church that was built in the last five or six years uh, near Columbus. And uh, if you look around, this might not be particularly offensive, right? It's just a, a space. Um, but it's a very empty space, a very utilitarian space. You look at these walls and the architect took, took special care to emphasize the uh, utilitarian aspects, the vents coming down, the structure unadorned, all the million acoustical tiles here, all of which serve merely uh, 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 functional uses, the can lights throughout everywhere, and uh, has done nothing to fill this with the, the glory and festivity uh, of uh, you know, what we believe the church to be and to be all about. Here's the back wall, nothing on it, except for some speakers and some fake plants. So um, I don't wanna end this talk on this note because it seems like the world has ended as we knew it, um, but, there, but there is actually hope. So this church right here, St. Mary's, uh, hired me to see what I could do to, to redesign this. So a lot of us artists here have work in this show, don't just work on a, on a uh, small scale, uh, like these works of art that are wall paintings, but rather on a larger scale as well. This is the design that I came up with. The entire mural uh, wall would be covered in a mural. I'm actually painting this right now. It's a 14-foot circle showing Christ uh, uh, um, crowning his mother and surrounded by uh, saints. We have the lamb from the, um, the book of Revelations, the Lamb's Supper, this idea that that is the wedding feast of the Lamb and the Mass that we're celebrating, uh, towards which we are all traveling to be reunited ultimately at the, at the end of time. So this, uh, this uh, the cosmological view of theology is being sort of reintroduced, the waters of life flowing forth, as the book of Revelation says, from the, the throne in the center and the tree of life growing uh, forth from it as well. So it's very fertile, it's a very uh, inviting and welcoming um, environment. And I'm not the only one doing these things. Of course, there are others. Uh, architect James McCreary uh, designing churches like this and uh, building them. Duncan Stroik, this is the, the chapel at Thomas Aquinas that was just built in the last couple of years. Uh, the good news for the Josephinum here is that a guy named uh, William Heyer, architect uh, in Columbus, is 
in charge of, of renovating that, that space and working that out. So I think that the, a mural will be reintroduced. Um, David Maleka in Columbus designed this beautiful church in Leewood, Kansas, St. Michael's. And you can see all the types of things that we're talking about uh, uh, the, the, um, uh, within it. Here was one of the initial preliminary drawings. And on the inside, you still see uh, that uh, Christocentric view here. Uh, and the altar, uh, you see the starry heavens, right? These heavens that, that filled with stars that aren't merely um, stars as we see them, but they're actually bursting forth and turning into flowers. And uh, you see the uh, flowing down from here in the center, which we can't see is the Holy Spirit. This is in the baptis baptismal font, and the grace uh, flowing down the walls uh, as well. This, this um, idea of uh, nature uh, um, glorified and restored. In painting, you have other artists, not, not only the people here on these walls, but, but people like this, um, uh, uh, who are Leonard Porter, Porter who is uh, painting large-scale murals. James Langley, who actually used to teach here. Some of you may know him, um, uh, still painting uh, large and small. Uh, this is a painting that I did a few years ago, 15-foot um, wide uh, painting for a private chapel. Uh, so there's a sort of a resurgence happening uh, now, a, a reintroduction and a reinterest in uh, figurative art. Um, Anthony Visco, sculptor from Philadelphia. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, one of my works that I completed about a year ago, a sculpture of Christ crucified. So uh, just as you know, the, the figure is an image of man in art, and man is an image of God, and God is deemed in his salvific plan to uh, raise us from the dead. So too art, I think, is being resurrected in a sense. It, it, art that fully encompasses all these values of personhood that we uh, talked about, all these elements of, of humanity, cannot simply just die. I think that that would be impossible. So the good news is that even when you try to uh, water the fertile grounds of uh, figurative art with the brackish water of, of modernism, uh, that uh, not everything about it is bad, but many things will die. And I think we're at a time right now when uh, the tomb is, is being cracked open and that, that sliver of light is, is piercing the darkness, the light that, as we learned from John, shall not be uh, overcome. Thank you very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.